heroes, and welcome to another informative episode of Critical Success. I'm James D'Amato, your Game Master. This week, I sit down to talk with Suzanne Wallace and Nolan T. Jones of Roll20. This conversation might sound a little familiar to heroes who listen to those two guests on Modifier. For my conversation, I tried to go more in-depth about how a virtual tabletop changes the dynamics of a role-playing game and the role-playing community. We also touch a little bit on the Wizards OGL announcement. We discovered through my and Megan's conversations with the folks from Roll20 that some creators are a little hazy on the legal aspect of the OGL announcement, which is why on an upcoming episode of Modifier, we invited a lawyer onto the show to simplify some of the legalese in the OGL announcement. If you're a creator who's interested in creating content under the new 5th edition OGL, you won't want to miss that episode. And if you have questions, be sure to pass them on to at Modifier Podcast on Twitter. With all that out of the way, let's get to the show. We are all right, heroes, let's meet our interviewees for this week. Uh, first up, we have, I'm actually going to start with Suzanne Wallace. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Suzanne, uh, for those who might not be familiar with uh, who you are and what you do, uh, could you tell everybody what you do for Roll20? Yes, I am the brand manager for Roll20, so I handle licensing and marketing work. I'm also the person that if you are a creator and interested in putting things on our marketplace, I am the person who will work with you and make that come to pass. Ah, well, I know we have several creators out in our audience, be they artists or game designers. So uh, Suzanne is definitely somebody that you should have on your contact list. Yep. <laughs> Suzanne, the way we like to get started on the program is to get to know uh, the people that we're talking to. And the one thing that we all have in common is games. And we want to know where you got started in the realm of RPG gaming. I started playing tabletop RPGs about three years ago. I started out with a Savage Worlds campaign and have basically been trying to work backwards from there in terms of going for simpler and simpler tabletop games. <laughs> so I remember when 5th edition came out because we were about to start a 3.5 campaign and we decided to switch over at the last second. And it was so gut-wrenching because I had to completely rebuild my character, but it was so worth it because my character, that became my favorite character of all time. Uh, Barbarians are just pretty great in 5th edition. <laughs> um, so yeah. That's really cool that you like started at Savage Worlds. I know so many people's first experience is Dungeons and Dragons. And like for me, my first experience was D&D 3.5. And I was sort of stuck in this like mechanics heavy mindset for a really, really long time before some people were able to break me free of that and, and show me a couple of the other options that are out there. And now I too am sort of like seeking out the lighter and lighter, more freeform systems that I can play. I love them. You started with Savage Worlds. You know, that that is one that is some people's like all time favorites. It's a great game. Uh, it was a little bit of a a steep learning curve for somebody who mm -hmm. is completely new. I am a lifelong video gamer, in the closet video gamer for the most part, um, up until shortly after college when I found people that explained that it was okay to be <laughs> a video gamer and be a girl. And that was actually a really cool thing. Um, but yeah, opening up to tabletop games was a very exciting sh uh, shift over. Would you consider yourself like majority a tabletop gamer these days? Like, I know it's hard to consider yourself that because like who has time to game that often, but uh, do video games uh, still have your first love or is it uh, tabletop all the way now? I think 
think video games will always be my first love. I am the person that gets very excited about the new releases, but tabletop games are my fallback. It's just so easy, especially now with all these great new systems coming to light and getting more popularity than they used to. It's easy to try out the new story game casually on a Friday night with friends. And it's for me, it's the social aspect of gaming, which for the stuff that I like in video games, you don't really get. They're all single player. Right. I really appreciate the way the dynamic that you have in the social aspect for tabletop gaming. It's much different than video gaming. I feel like when I sit down uh, at a video game, even if I'm playing with somebody else who's right in the room with me, my focus is so much on the game and that is distracting from my focus of the other person. Mm. Whereas tabletop, you have to be drawn in and engaged with, you know, what they're saying and what they're. Oh, yeah, very much so. With that, let's uh, introduce our other special guest who I have to admit, I I am kind of nerding out about some of you guys might know Nolan Jones from being one of the founding members of Roll20, but uh, Nolan is also a comics professional and he wrote some really good comics. Uh, Nolan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nolan, I want to get your history with tabletop. When did you start? It's funny because as as somebody who uh, founded Roll20, one of our deepest, darkest, and honestly, most prolific secrets at this point is that we got started really late. Uh, end of college playing fourth edition <laughs> is is really all that the the three of us who came up with this had played so i i loved fourth edition because coming from world of warcraft it was so much of the same sort of tactical number crunchy uh min maxing nonsense right right that, that makes it incredibly incredibly appealing uh to somebody coming from that video gamey realm and we just got in super lucky when we started Roll20 that there were tons of people who were like, we enjoy other things and we need you to be able to support that. And so every time we came to a fork in the road design wise, we went, well, should we make a fourth edition simulator or should we try to make this more like a table? And we chose the table route every time. And that otherwise we would not have all the people we've got today playing. Well, I'm actually really heartened to hear that fourth edition spoke to you as a WoW player, because that was that like the broad fan speculation is that that's what Wizards of the Coast was going for. They wanted to capture that audience and bring them into tabletop gaming. And I'm glad that it worked. <laughs> it, it it definitely it, well, And it, it, it's now to the point that you when you search, you know, play Dungeons and Dragons online. Uh, the first thing that comes up is roll twenty. So, so we made this happen. Like we we had we had a circle of life here moment uh, in terms of them making that game because that really is the thing that got all of us into it and and got us interested in tabletop gaming overall was the the number crunchy. Well, and it's funny. Uh, I, I like to my first game master in terms of like pulling me into playing these things. Uh, was trying to sell me on it because he knew I played a whole lot of World of Warcraft. And he was like, man, you need to play Dungeons and Dragons because it's like World of Warcraft, but more metal. <laughs> I got I to gotta see what that's like. Yeah, so. I mean, it's true. It's like yeah. all, so much metal music is directly inspired by Dungeons and Dragons and it's, fantasy role play. Yep. And so that that was that was his pitch to me, and uh, and here we are. <laughs> well, that's that's great, Nolan. Uh, do you find that you are still drawn to like the crunchier, more tactical games these days? Uh, have you branched out at all and tried other things? <laughs> well, it, overall, I am I am very much, and even when I was playing Fourth Edition, um, a a rule of cool type player, mm -hmm. meaning that you know if if it doesn't break the game and everybody thinks it's awesome, let's do it, right? Um, 
Uh, but I'll, I'll play anything. I play a fair amount of Fate. Uh, recently, my in-person group has gone back to... We did Edge of the Empire, and now we are doing the collective of the three Fantasy Flight Star Wars games. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we we actually started doing that in campaign, too. We started uh, bringing in the other books. Well, and it, it's fun, too, because the, the ways they, they do play off of each other, and it gives you something interesting to have the, the various people at the table having the, the different... El- it's a lot to keep track. I feel bad for my game master in it, because there's so much... He'd like <laughs> Our session last week, he literally looked at the two force users at the table, and he's like, I got no idea how any of that works yet, so I trust you to keep <laughs> to keep honest. I was <laughs> I feel like that's how it goes eventually. Like any system with enough complexity, especially like D and D three five or Pathfinder or Shadowrun. At a certain point, the GM just has to go. Okay, I trust you to know what you're yeah. doing because there's no way I'm reading every single book. But it, I mean, I like I said, I play a, a fair amount of of anything these days. But I'm I'm not. I'm in no way married to being a uh, a rules strong component at the table. I really it, I like the cooperative storytelling aspect uh, of this thing a whole heck of a lot. Which is which is one of the reasons I think what you guys do is so cool. Oh, in you. that I wish I wish that more people who were doing the there's a lot of people out there doing the online replay type thing. It's funny I just gave a talk at Oticon this past week about the idea of uh, online Twitch and podcast and YouTube streaming being an extension of the Japanese replay genre. I, I completely agree with that. We we actually had Andy Katowski not on not too long ago who's translating a lot of Japanese games and and he described that scene which sounds exactly like what we're doing just in writing yeah and and so i i think that the cooperative storytelling aspect is way more interesting than the you know we're sitting here rummaging through rules and like it's interesting to me specifically like if you go back to a couple years ago the earlier role play stuff that jp mcdaniel was putting together the gms on that are all like really hardcore rules guys and it's like i i can't believe the people are watching that (laughs) like i don't I don't understand what's fun about sitting there and like, I don't know if you can pull off this feat. Like, <laughs> I think it's way, way more interesting to flip, flip into the other side and just like telling crazy, crazy stories with a group of people that are really into it and, and come from more of an improv background. So I'm glad that you exist. Well, thank you so much for that. I will say, I mean, for football, there are some people who do watch the pregame and postgame analysis. So for that crowd, there's got to be a similar role playing option. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, I think entertaining the audience is is kind of the forefront of this. So uh, the, everyone can exist, uh, especially as I put on my Roll20 PR hat. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's very important to say that all, all stripes of gaming and gamers are allowable. It's about what you want at your table. But I want at my table to tell a crazy story. I think that is a great note to segue into talking about Roll20. Now, I can't imagine that there's anybody out there listening right now who doesn't know at least a little bit about what Roll20 is, whether they've, you know, just seen the logo somewhere or seen it brought up in a forum. But I would like Nolan and Suzanne, you guys to introduce your platform because I think it is really, really cool. So I'm, I'm going to be super mean and I'm going to, I'm going to throw this to Suzanne because so we did, we did not point out early on. Suzanne is new to the roll 20 family. And so uh, we're Padawan and Jedi mastering here. 
let's let's see how the Padawan is doing. Uh, yeah, I'll t- start with the basics. That Roll Twenty is, of course, a browser-based way to play games. Basically, a tabletop sandbox in the sense that our goal is to recreate the tabletop for players to access anywhere that they have an internet access and a webcam if they want to use video chat. But the idea is that we're system agnostic. We're really good for any game. We're not dice dependent. That's a really important aspect. And what we really just want to do is recreate that tabletop setup so that you can come to one place, come to one browser slash tabletop and play really any game that you want to play from D&D 5th edition to the latest story game to Monopoly. That's our main goal is to offer gamers everywhere of all types a safe environment and an easy way to play whatever they want to play. And I'm going to point out that simply that base service of offering that virtual tabletop that people can come to from different points online, being able to connect players who might be across the country who used to play with each other in college or, or high school or somewhere in their past, allowing them to connect over something that actually feels like a tabletop is amazing enough. And I will point out that I am in no way affiliated with Roll20 and uh, (laughs) you're not paying me any money here. But the most amazing thing uh, about Roll20 is that it works. I, I remember back in the early days when a lot of these platforms were coming up, a lot of people were throwing this idea out there. There were so many people that made such big promises about what they would be able to do and it whipped everybody into excitement. I remember when people were talking about Google Wave as like the thing that was going to change tabletop gaming. Let me let me throw in here and this is the thing that's made licensing for Roll20 harder than I ever could have imagined is that we are dealing with the fallout of all these platforms that promise the moon in terms of what they would be able to do for tabletop games and now we're coming in, you know, years after the fact with the first like we're by far the largest population platform in comparison to, to anything else that has been out there previously. And it's like, okay, we actually we actually have this going. Are you interested in putting something on our platform? And they're like, well, we tried, you know, four years ago with these guys that had a total of 5,000 people that ever used their product and it didn't work out. And it's like, well, I have 1.3 million people <laughs> and they would really like some stuff. So if you could put some time towards it, uh, yeah, that whole era has really made our job uh, a lot harder. I, I, I'm sure, but the ama- one of the other amazing things about the platform is that in areas where the actual companies uh, that would license, you know, direct assets to you haven't stepped up, fans of those products have been jumping in and creating and tailoring and tweaking different tools to use on the platform. Yeah. It's for sure. It's been this awesome uh, little collaboration of love. Like I remember uh, I was trying to create a dungeon world game there so that I could play with a couple of my Patreon backers. And when I was I, I like, I just assumed going in, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to build everything from the ground up. And after the smallest amount of Googling, I found out, oh, there is an incredible wealth of resources that's already on the platform. And I basically didn't have to do anything at all. I mean, and that's the the hope is that well, it's it's interesting because you can go. I, I think one of the nice things about us is that you can go either direction. You can hop in and play a game like uh, like the lazy GM that I am. And just, uh, we're going to theater of the mind it and we're going to pull some things out of a hat and it'll all work out. 
or you can come from the other angle of I have set up, you know, not just the uh, the set pieces that I think are definitely going to happen, but to make certain that I don't railroad you, I've set up 30 other set pieces that we can branch out into. And they're all in there with absolutely every monster statted and, you know, pictures and handouts and that sort of thing, too. So you can go to either extreme. And I think that's a really nice it, it makes for a nice set of tools for folks. Absolutely. Suzanne, I, I want to talk a little bit about what makes the Roll20 platform different than like being at a table. Because while I, I think some people see an electronic platform and they go, well, automatically, I'm probably going to prefer what I know and what I'm familiar with. Uh, most people, I think, overlook what you can do on Roll20 that you simply can't do. At a table. Uh, the great thing is some of the tools that we do provide obviously are uh, digital and electronic and can create a virtual environment, which obviously is kind of hard. I mean, on a tabletop, you can have essentially an avatar. You can have painted minis that are moving around and you can draw maps, but you can't create an interactive virtual environment, which you can with tools like our dynamic lighting tools. So if somebody's holding a torch, they can see farther than people who are not holding a torch. You can have a blood trail if they're wounded. So wherever they go, they leave a little squelchy thing of nice red blood. Oh man, I haven't seen that yet. That's awesome. Yeah. There are lots of really cool image heavy interactive ways to personalize your games that really make it pop out of the screen and come to life in ways that would simply be in your mind only if you were playing on a real life tabletop. And that's so amazing to me. When I first got on Roll20, like I have been paying for Roll20 as one of the subscribing members for I, I think around two years now. And I have probably only played a handful of games, but Roll20 has provided me endless hours of entertainment in just setting up scenarios that I might one day be able to run for people. <laughs> I have been customizing a castle in Roll20 <laughs> that I envision as a Lovecraftian boarding school where children go and have to solve mysteries because their professors are, you know, horrible beings from an outer realm. And I've spent hours just designing different hallways and room layouts and creating something that to me feels like a living, breathing world already, even though I've shared it with no one else. And I've just been using the tools in the program to create something. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I think another thing digitally that works very nicely in terms of uh, you, you talk about uh, the things that you're setting up and the comfort that that brings. One of the main benefits of Roll20 that I didn't realize was something that was cool that we had tapped into was you don't have to pick it up and do anything with it afterwards. You know, if, if you set up everything on your kitchen table to get ready for a game and have everybody over, if you're in the middle of a fight and it's run longer than you thought, You've got to figure out, well, what am I doing with that? Where am I moving it? How am I making this? And Roll20, it, it just persistently exists. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a small, stupid thing, but it's really, really 
uh, fantastic, I think, for the the modern gamer. That's a that's a real thing. That's twenty minutes of your life on both ends of the game every single time. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And like, rem- also having to remember like what different things happened in previous sessions. Like, it's all there. Uh, you don't to go to a new environment. You don't have to erase the map and have everybody walk away from the table for twenty minutes while you draw in the new combat arena. Like. Everything is there and presented to you and presented to you like you can use the basic tools of Roll20, which are extensive for free. So you can have this five or six environments that you take your players to uh, without having to do any of that teardown or anything like that for no money. Where I know I have spent probably in, in my life uh, around $250 on different battle maps just so I could have three or four <laughs> <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to like switch <laughs> everything and erase everything every time. Yeah, I, I know exactly that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that I really want to tap into, uh, because Roll, Roll20 is something, because it is the big successful virtual tabletop out there, it is changing the way that people interact with games. It presents a massive opportunity to our industry, which has, over the past couple of years, been given amazing virtual tools to allow this industry to grow and breathe. Like, I'm sure uh, the Roll20 team knows very well, Kickstarter has completely changed everything. Uh, We can now do things in the tabletop industry where, where we couldn't before. But you guys have made gaming really really accessible uh i always say to people online when i'm talking about uh, stuff like this if you are somebody who is interested in gaming and curious about gaming odds are you can go on to the roll 20 forums right now and find a game to be in probably by the end of the day if not that sometime that week there are that many people in that space that can just welcome you uh, into the world of tabletop gaming, and it's easy. You don't have to leave your house. It, it's been crazy to see that progression, too, as, as somebody behind the, the wheel of it all. When we first started off in our Kickstarter in early 2012, we got all these thank yous from people that, you know, oh, my gaming group hasn't played together in a decade, and you're reuniting us, and thanks for that. But now the the excitement is equally, if not more, towards... So I've always heard about this stuff and I've, you know, I, I like Dragon Age or what, whatever games that they're coming from in terms of the video game world, you know, Final Fantasy. And I, I know all of this has some tie into that and I've always wanted to try it. And I don't have a gaming store around me or the gaming store around me is creepy or whatever, <laughs> whatever the case may be. And this gives an opportunity to, in a, in a safe environment, jump in and go. And I think that that's a really interesting um, progression. And I, I'm curious to see where the hobby goes because of these things. Like, I, I think something that, that we often forget is that this is a really, really young industry. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. In in all reality, like, we can, we can go to everybody at the major tabletop gaming companies and trace back uh, their connection to Gary Gygax by, you know, a factor of one. <laughs> like, like... Uh, the things that are going to happen that we can't like, you know, right now, the only household name in tabletop gaming is Dungeons and Dragons. And I think one of these days that's going to change and it's going to be because of a new era of folks taking these, uh, this hobby and doing something with it that we haven't even 
you know, fathomed yet. And that's really, it's fun to be like a piece in that puzzle and seeing that change happen. I mean, for, for me, providing the platform and the community for people to connect with role playing and do it directly, I think is a major component to that puzzle. The only way that people would get into it otherwise is, you know, if on a whim they saw a flyer in a library or, or saw an ad for a convention and decided to do it or just had their friends like drag them kicking and screaming into the hobby. <laughs> This is the first time where actual curiosity that isn't like soul-wrenching curiosity can actually pull people in. Googling <laughs> role-playing games and playing games online and actually being able to find something that works and like has been working is nuts. I know I'm gushing here, but like I, I really think uh, that is a staggering statement that uh, we just have never been able to say. It's always been so hard for people to get into this hobby. And if it weren't such an intense passion and love uh, that people have for tabletop gaming, this would have all fallen apart decades ago. It's cool. <laughs> like, there's, there's no, I, I don't know what to say beyond that. Like it, it definitely has been really interesting watching, watching the progression. Like and and just you know, it's such a short scope of it. You know, what, the way things are different now than they were literally four years ago. Yeah, it, it's crazy to me that you guys mentioned that it was in 2012 when you did your Kickstarter because I, that completely like slipped my mind of how how short it's been since uh, the inception of your program. I, I think even just thinking about Kickstarter in terms of where it's at now, in terms of where it was like in, so in 2012, it Kickstarter, like one, it was crazy. Oh my gosh, we made $39,000 in 18 days. Like that's, <laughs> and now, and now that sounds like nothing in terms of Kickstarter figures, but back then it was like the, you know, the, the sky had moved. Um, <laughs> Uh, beyond that too just even the like kickstarter was not a natural inclination in terms of like you, you're you're sitting around thinking about cool ideas of stuff to do and you go okay so what's the kickstarter look like <laughs> um kickstarter came up in in our conversations because i had a buddy uh frank barbary who had done the first issue of his comic book series five ghosts which eventually uh came out at image and is now it's been optioned for television on uh Ooh, sci-fi cool um yeah, but he had done one issue of this comic and I think for like $500 uh, had gotten together on Kickstarter and I was like, huh, maybe there's something to this whole crowdfunding thing. Uh, and yeah, just the the extent to which now that's day to day, like at that point in time, I remember the amount of people I had to explain what Kickstarter was to in terms of uh, of having this sort of conversation. And now it's, you know, everyday life everything's from kickstarter right like oh yeah I, I i there are so many people who not related to games not related to comedy or comics or any of the circles that i am in who just mentioned that they oh i've got an idea for a thing that could be on kickstarter it's yep it's crazy how that has just made it so that yeah whatever you are trying to do is actually possible and the only thing that's really standing in your way is like are you going to do it and what's your approach when you do it for sure suzanne now i know you coordinate with licensees for the roll 20 network and platform there are a bunch of people out there who have very particular case uh, tastes in the one-shot audience because <laughs> we play 
a bunch of crazy games uh, that uh, most people assume when they sit down to play, oh, there's no one else in the world who cares about this. Uh, so I would like to go through with you just uh, some of the platforms that you guys are already working with. Uh, yeah, I might actually... Nolan has been able to recently get most of those licenses up. So I want to let, make sure that he has a chance to speak about that. Sure. No, it was, it's one of those things like as, as we get her up to speed on more and more things, I think that she'll be better able to take some of this, okay. but the, the folks that we are officially working with right now, and it's out in the open and I can say that we're working with them, <laughs> uh, which is an important yes. caveat. Uh, 13th age um, and both. So 13th age is a system that it, it actually has two owners Um Pilgrim Press, who is doing the the publishing of the books, and Fire Opal, who came up with the original uh, intellectual property, and both of those companies too have an interest in bringing some other things to us after after we get some more done with Thirteenth Age. Uh, but that's a game that we've got a official character sheet that's coming out here soon, as well as some adventures and something that we're very excited about. Um, the the actual uh, entire World of Darkness line. Uh, we've licensed a character sheet with and are looking at what other things that oh, we can that's add. Great. So that's, you know, your vampire, the masquerade and mage and werewolf and all those, uh, those classic games. Um, other licenses that are out there in the vortex. Um, who can I, and can't I talk about? <laughs> well, like that, that's the funny thing about this is that there's, there's all these licenses that, Things get moving on, and then they they get stuck here and there. Oh, I'm, I'm forgetting a, a giant one, Monaco Games, um, that came in last year. And we've got a couple modules of the Strange Up, as well as an overall character sheet for the Cypher system uh, that powers that. And that's the sort of thing that that's, it, it's been really fun to see uh, that get a jump, too, in terms of the amount of players and, and that sort of thing using the platform uh, here. It, it it's fun too to to have somebody like uh, Monty Cook around and you know using the right. platform. So that, so that, so that's the sort of thing that we've gotten a kick out of. But I'd say those are the Thirteenth uh, Age. Both of its uh, both of its back end owners uh, may have more things coming down the pipeline. Uh, Monty Cook Games and World of Darkness are probably the the biggest baddest. I would also mention that uh, obviously the creator of Dungeon World is a Roll Twenty. One of the co-creators of Dungeon World is a Roll Twenty employee, yes. Adam Tobel. But that's an open license game, and it's not—it's not, it's not as fair. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm cheating when I use that as a as a licensing get because you know anybody. I, I don't, and I don't think so. And here's why: there are so many people who are hacking Dungeon World right now in my audience uh, who are using the Apocalypse Engine to make their new cool ideas. It's really important that people know that there is a platform that has tools for you to use if you want to play test your new design and you don't have people in your area to play test it. Well, that's that brings up to me uh, two interesting sub stories in terms of licensing. One, uh, there's a there's a it was a Kickstarter at one point. Uh, now I don't think he's actually going to go any further with the game, but a, a game called Simple System that was a card-based instead of role-based RPG. So essentially, uh, you had ranges of good or bad or crit at something for card decks that you'd pull from instead of like dice rolling ranges, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. And so he he built this entire game 
um, off of this and play test it in Roll20. And it's available for purchase as a, as a module. And I think that's so cool, seeing somebody like build a game uh, within the platform, which is nuts. Uh, but then additionally, I know that we've, I don't have the announcement yet, but we've got another system in that sort of line coming out soon uh, that's been previewed some if you watch uh, Roll20 Twitch streams. But we've also done, uh, have you ever played The Quiet Year? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, uh, The Quiet Year is a game that we we went, and I that's actually a one of the rare instances of me going and beating down somebody's door. Uh, to try to license a game because I love the weirdness. Yeah, Avery like, Avery is a fantastically talented designer. A- Avery is is brilliant, <laughs> but I, I think the thing that's truly brilliant about it is like every time I've played that game, uh, it's such a profound experience in a way that it, it doesn't. I don't know how to convey to people <laughs> with, with like, it's like, no, you just have to play this game. You have to sit down with, with a group of people and go through this and get to the end and be like, what was that? Like it's, it's such a, in the, in the world where it's cooperative storytelling and we're building something together. Uh, each one of my quiet year games, uh, the story I build feels like uh, the most gut punchy movie <laughs> or television miniseries that you've ever witnessed. Like it, it, it's like playing Evangelion, and you're sitting there at the end, and everything is talking heads, and nothing makes sense, and <laughs> just like what what just happened, and why do I here? feel this way? Uh, yeah, and I, and I love that, and that's one of those things like to to be able to support a system like that within Roll Twenty, and just have that out there for people to go buy is cool as heck. And I would love to get more things like that on the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is something that uh, the designers in our audience need to think about. The idea of having this as a really cool thing for consumers is, I think, the thing that people immediately jump to. And it's easy to imagine someone playing your game through a platform like this eventually. But you can develop your game through a platform like this. And you can use it as part of development as uh, Nolan mentioned, you know, actually coordinating to build tools and components within the system to make your game playable, but also using it as a way to connect with people who have not yet sampled your work. Uh, well, and that, that's something to think about, too, in terms of if, if I could talk to you in the audience who is thinking about that, uh, jump in full speed and don't worry about... Um, protecting yourself in in that sort of area because i think a mistake a lot of us make in the creative field is that when we've got an idea uh we're afraid it's going to get snuck out from under us <laughs> and and as somebody in terms of making roll 20 uh since our kickstarter there's been at least seven or eight virtual tabletop kickstarters um that have come and gone when you're when you're playtesting a system like this, when you're trying to get even an initial word out before it's available for sale, get people and get excited. That's something that Dungeon World did incredibly well, was really being out there talking and having people play the game. Uh, so leverage the fact that Roll20's got a big community and that you're doing something cool and hop in and and get the play testing, figure out what needs to happen and don't worry about, well, I got to keep this under wraps until this point in time. Going the other direction, I think is a lot, lot smarter if you're just out there getting. That's a really good point. And I mean, the, one of the things that we love so much about Roll20 is that we've made this community and 
to go off that, we want to share it with creators. I mean, it's a great place for them to come and play test something. And I would just wholeheartedly recommend that. It's something that like you'd think would be a no brainer, but it's, it's so hard that this industry is unbelievably slow to adapting to new things until really we invented Kickstarter. I know we didn't invent Kickstarter, but man, did we take it and run with it. And in the past, like, you know, five years, the tabletop industry has developed at a crazy rate. And we've been jumping on these new ideas. And this is something that I definitely want to encourage people not to ignore. Yeah. Uh, so with that, I actually want to talk to you guys about an old idea that uh, you actually originally approached me to discuss, uh, and that's the open game license and the new announcement that Wizards of the Coast made regarding 5th edition. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's is the uh, When that dropped out of the sky last week, uh, that was definitely a... <gasps> like, like, well, it, because it, I think what ends up happening is that people see an announcement like that and they're like, oh, fifth edition is free and I can do whatever I want now. And uh, it, so so from the sides of like creators contacting us to be like, so I can now release everything I ever wanted to relating to fifth edition and from users saying, OK, I'm now going to put together a campaign of the monster manual and just share it with everybody. Um, it was definitely a lot of no, 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 like. It, within the first paragraph of the 398-page document that Wizards dropped last week, uh, <laughs> it specifically says, you know, the words Monster Manual are still part of our product identity and trademarked. And, you know, it, it's a very limited scope in terms of what all... It, I guess my uh, my overall thesis is, like, disclaimer, it's really cool, but it's not everything. And understanding what all is and is not released is something to do before you hop feet first into that. Um, so before we continue too far down this rabbit hole, and we are going to get down this rabbit hole, I want to point out uh, that uh, Nolan and Suzanne are coordinating with uh, Megan Dornbrock of our Modifier podcast, which is about hacking games and uh, game design and changing rules. So they are going to be digging deep into what the new OGL actually means uh, for designers who want to get uh, into that sphere of design. But I really want everybody, uh, you know, who's thinking of dipping their toe in to understand sort of the traps and pitfalls and the areas where you do have incredible freedom within this new thing. Well, that's I, I like to point out when talking about this sort of thing, uh, Paizo exists because the 3.5 OGL. Mm -hmm. So all of all of Pathfinder is sprouted from this uh, opportunity. So huge, gigantic, amazing things can happen, but you've got to really. I mean, it, it, I can't imagine the amount of time, like just from a licensing standpoint, in terms of the folks that we've worked with on three point five content over the and, and Pathfinder SRD content uh, system reference document for those of you who don't OGL Open Gaming License SRD system reference document, uh, which are the two terms for what is and is not available and how this weird licensing world that Wizards has uh, cut out for themselves exist. Uh, but we've dealt with it a lot on our end uh, previously before this uh, this fifth edition SRD launch. And I can't imagine the extent to which uh, Lisa Stevens and the folks at Paizo like 
I bet I bet they have that document <laughs> memorized in a way that that like just just blows my mind. Uh, but we have definitely played with it a whole heck of a lot, and so it's the sort of thing that um, I, I take very seriously. The idea, and part of this is maybe that just that I'm married to a lawyer, um, <laughs> but but take very seriously like looking at it, understanding it, and realizing what you can and can't do. So, well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, let's say I am an enthusiastic, experienced Roll Twenty user. I have plans to make a campaign uh, that I want to distribute to people through Roll Twenty. What what am what am I allowed to do? You are allowed to use certain <laughs> stat blocks. <laughs> it's, it's, is really the most important. Uh, element of of what you are allowed to do, and and to, so it, I'm I'm actually pulling up the document in front of me. So the things that it says is open game content are mechanic methods, procedures, processes, routines, like these vagities of, and the the truth of of copyright law is that you can't actually copyright game rules. Which that is correct. <laughs> right. But you can copyright any sort of flavor. And and that is that's the reality of the situation is that you know, in terms of the content that Wizards has made, they are in charge of all of the flavor. So the way something sounds, the way it's described, and and things like that. And what they're doing with an SRD, with a systems reference document, is they're giving us some of the flavor. So they're saying you can use tieflings. And you can take these traits that we have in terms of how we've described tieflings over the years, and you can use them and be entirely in the clear and then build onto that your own things as long as they don't interfere with any of the things that we already have. And that's honestly, I think, the part that gets the most tricky is that they've got an out in terms of... Uh, I, I call it, and I stole this from somewhere over over the months of talking about this in previous SRDs. Uh, the the bloodsucker conundrum. The idea being, if there's not a description for bloodsucker as a as a uh, existing spell, for example, mm-hmm. you could go and create flavor text around that and do things around that. But if Wizards ever gets around to doing something with that. Um, you're covered to a point unless you're re-releasing and then you would have to change the name and fiddle. So there's a, there's a really big, uh, responsibility that you're throwing on your, you either have to be so creative that they're never going to go anywhere near you, or you have to be up on kind of everything in terms of figuring out where you fit in the world. And I mean, there's definitely coverage for, you know, good intent to some degree, but that is, uh, it's not retroactive. <laughs> like you've got to, you've got to get it right when you do it initially, and and go from there. Though a thing that we should point out to uh, listeners right now who might be getting a little bit dissuaded <laughs> and nervous, uh, doing Sorry. something, yeah, doing something that uh, may violate the current structure for OGL. Um, if, if you do something that that wizard sees and goes, ah, that's actually not using it properly, they are going to send you a C and D, a cease and desist first. You are yes. not immediately embroiled in a. Right. You're not immediately a going to court. legal battle. Yeah. Well, and but I think that's so true of like ninety percent of copyright um, these days in terms of like the internet's entire existence 
<laughs> is is a series of cease and desist letters happening yes uh, behind the behind the scenes but it, i think it's one of those things that we would everyone would prefer to avoid that you know when you're doing something like this you want to be able to go out and get it right and it is doable uh, it takes it, it, I, I think the wrong idea is to go into it as a fan messing around, uh, but to kind of kind of take some professional pomp with it and go, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to know how this works. I'm going to read through this document and see what things there are and get ideas from it and see what things there aren't and make note of that. And it gives you it. Like I said, the entirety of Paizo's existence is is sprung forth from this. So if you're into Pathfinder, um, and you look at what Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 was, uh, that's got to be something that gets you excited. Like the <laughs> idea, the idea, like holy cow, I can build an entire empire. Um, but at the same time, that's the sort of thing. Like, is it? And this is this is my challenge to those of you out there who are thinking about doing things with this. Is it better to do something within fifth uh, edition because of the market that already exists there, or when you're putting in this much work, is it better to make your own rule set? Is it better to go and and go entirely new ground? And I, honest to goodness, I I have no answer for that. And that's the sort of thing that um, you as a creator have got to look long and hard at and figure out what the right. Uh, you know, there's definitely an advantage to being able to say this is a fifth edition compatible adventure. And so people who are familiar with the most popular rule set out there can jump into it. One of the but, things that I uh, usually say to people who are looking to start designing things for themselves for the first time is there's there's no shame and there is not much danger in looking to something that's open like the 3.5 or like new fifth edition or for that matter fate or apocalypse world using a foundation that already exists that you as a gamer who have played these games are already familiar with to start getting your ideas out there and learning yeah. what your voice is well i i think even thinking about like just person as game master uh how often i have gone and pulled up adventures looked through it you know even gone to the library pulled 10 adventure hooks from various adventures that they've got there and used those and sprinkled them in my homebrewed campaigns like it, it's, it's it's what's the yeah. phrase steal like an artist <laughs> yeah exactly yes right i mean bottom line is that I mean, makers got to make, and uh, yeah. we want our creators to be creating stuff, and inspiration comes from everywhere. It's just this divide of there are things that you're ultimately going to create that might not be shareable with the universe that might want to see and love your work. So there's um, – obviously, we want people to create whatever it is that they want to create, and then just keep in mind that there are – some things are totally shareable with the world and some things are not so much. So I, I can tell that there are definitely people out there champing at the bit to dig into this. I know a bunch of my friends, when the announcement was made, were like, ah, finally, I, I can start uh, looking into uh, distributing some of this stuff or, or, or working on some of this stuff. And I know uh, the fable that we heard earlier when I was going to, uh, quote unquote, bring Dungeon World uh, to Roll20, I looked and there was already a vibrant of people who had created uh, base level platforms and tools for me to use which made uh, my work so much easier 
there must be a vibrant community of creators on the Roll20 forums right now who are starting to dig into this and helping each other learn what this means. If uh, I'm somebody who's going to dip a toe into this uh, and I am engaged with Roll20, where, where do I go to talk about this? Our forums, to some degree, is is somewhere to talk about this, but uh, I I would give the caveat that we really try to keep conversation there focused on uh, just the platform itself. You know, we we try not uh, the our biggest concern is to keep the the world civil is that we never want our forums to devolve into like addition wars, or, <laughs> right, or, right. or GM style. Uh, combat. Well, you don't have enough buy-in in terms of what your players will believe if you run your game like this. And, and we we try to get that to move elsewhere. <laughs> um, but I mean, you can get on Twitter and look at hashtag RPG chat and find people who are talking about these sort of things. Uh, so many folks on Reddit. So many. There's tons and tons of places on the internet where people are talking about these sorts of things. Well, and, and I think another way to think about it too is, you know, starting a game on Rule 20 and saying that you're doing it with the aim of playtesting things that you're thinking about and you want other people who are considering that, you're going to find folks um, that are interested in that sort of brain space. So, you know, go out there and, and say what you're looking to do and and I think you will be pleasantly surprised at what exists yeah, um, and definitely look to the things, uh, the earliest releases that are coming out of this OGL announcement, uh, because you're going to see this coming from people like uh, Cobalt Press, who, you know, was sure. creating adventures and things, you know, for ages. Uh, they're definitely going to have uh, fifth edition materials cobbled together out of this OGL. So if you're nervous about the type of things that you want to do, look to some of the people who have been doing it for years and see what they turn out of it and use that as a guideline for yourself. I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see what um, some of those companies that were licensed to do the official uh, initial fifth edition. Like it, it's so interesting. The idea that, you know, wizards didn't do a lot of those initial adventures. <laughs> and so to have these companies that are so intimately aware of the brand and have been making things previously have the opportunity to do it outside of the scope of their licensing agreements. It's, it's such an odd, uh, but exciting setup to look at. I mean, the thing that we didn't talk about, which is, is what a weird and crazy and amazing business model and idea. The OGL was when it first came along. Uh, <laughs> That's one of those things, like, I can never, and, and this is one of those addition war conversations that uh, we don't want on our forums. <laughs> like, I can't figure out, so that we have this with 3.5, and there's, you know, I, I as armchair quarterback, I don't know if it was good, bad, or otherwise, because they don't do it with 4th edition. They do the GSL, the game systems license, which was so narrow that nobody really attempted to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we're going back to an open gaming license and I don't know what the, uh, I'd be curious what the impetus was, the, the whys and hows for what made it the right decision for them at this time to go, you know, this is the way to do it. So I, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to suss out, especially at my level of business analysis, why now? Um, though I will say the first open game license is like an idea that's so half-baked 
crazy. I can't believe a million dollar company actually went through with it. And the effect that it had is no business analyst would tell you, oh, yeah, let's open up uh, your IPs so that people can use it and do their own things with it. It was all that magic the gathering money. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they just went, you know what? Let's try some crazy this week. Yeah, they they had definitely snorted a bunch of chopped up black lotuses and were like, hey, let's open up D&D. Let's, let's see what happens. <laughs> Uh, but the the thing that actually happened is you had these people in your community who played your game who are already creators. These are people who were engaging with your product and building an unbelievable amount of material uh, and sitting on it for years and years and years. All of a sudden, they could do something with it on a more professional level. And it created this whole community of people who created something that's essentially an advertisement for Wizards of the Coast. You yeah. can't buy somebody's D&D 3.5 module without using the core books that they have already provided. Uh, and we see with Pathfinder, when you compare what Pathfinder was doing to what 4th Edition was doing, Pathfinder was, for a short period of time, the biggest thing in the hobby. There was sure. no other yeah. publishing company doing more. And part of that was because that vibrant community of creators who were generating massive amounts of new content were doing it still under that open game. I... I was hoping that Wizards was going to move back to the open game license because of what it means to our hobby as a whole in terms of growth. Simply, like, you can only entertain yourself on a, you know, couple annual release of a Wizards of the Coast a guided adventure product for so long uh, before you want to turn to other areas. And if you're not the type of person who creates your own campaign, uh, having these creators out there doing this incredible amount of work uh, is going to keep you more engaged with the hobby. It's really incredible that they decided to do this crazy thing and that this crazy thing worked. Yeah. Well, it, it, and you, the, the points you bring up about the accelerated release schedule this allows I, I think are the things that are the most interesting that, you know, that we're, that it puts us in a place where people who are so content hungry, um, that they want tons and tons of, of extra adventures. Well, and two more choice, I think, which is interesting, mm -hmm. you know, because wizards, you know, they've got essentially a core path of adventures, but to have all sorts of different things you could look at in different flavors, um, I think that's the that's one of the things that's going to be very interesting too is seeing what uh, what flavors might come up off of this. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they're what they do next with this. Like I'm sure I, I'm sure there's a plan. <laughs> I, I, I should hope there's a plan. I, I hope it's not just uh, put the same idea we did out there and, and let it sit. Um, I, it does seem like there's a more structured like organization to what it is this time than there was last time. I think it's more legally put together, but I, 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 I don't know. Uh, there's a part of me that wonders, and this is one of those is viewing from outside, not certain what's what analysis but the amount of folks that they at one point laid off and then brought back on, like there's definitely something in terms of uh, churn that they don't quite have figured out. Mm -hmm. But I don't like I don't have the the knowledge for what that means. But as as 
the entirety of the community of of role playing uh, looks at things, we at the very least can say, you know, the hobby is very healthy right now. Uh, Whether yes. <laughs> beyond beyond what may or may not be happening behind the scenes at Wizards, uh, I think the overall hobby is in a great place. And you look at stuff like the uh, the reports for sales. What is it? The ICV two reports, and it it looks good. Uh, you look at stuff like our or group industry report, and you see big numbers. And fifth edition, you know, has moved in the past year very comfortably to the top of the pile in what people are playing and want to play. So something is going right. Yeah. The thing that I would most want people to take away from this, uh, when you look historically at 3.5, uh, after the era of Dungeons and Dragons being like a huge cultural touchstone where you had Gary Gygax off in Hollywood trying to get movies made and like (laughs) SRD considering setting up a train from Chicago to Lake Geneva where people would play D&D on the train. Like after that era where there was an unconscionable amount of money flowing through this industry and the tiny death that the industry suffered, you had 3.5, which went on to become the biggest role-playing system that ever was. And a big part of that is because uh, they let in a community of excited people who were full of creative energy to come play in the sandbox as well. So when we say the industry is healthy, the industry is healthy because there are people out there like you who are playing these games and who are creating new things out of them. So to keep that industry healthy, please get out there get creative, whether you're doing it through uh, an online platform like Roll20 or you're doing it at your very own tabletop uh, with just you and your friends. That is the thing that keeps this around. Uh, And that's why we have wonderful people like Nolan and Suzanne in this industry out there engaging new people and spreading these games to new minds. So Nolan and Suzanne, thank you guys so much for joining me and talking about this. Thank you so much. I mean... Come play a game with us. <laughs> uh, we would absolutely love to play a game with you guys. Uh, I, I would be thrilled to do that. Um, if our audience wants to look you guys up, uh, where, where can they find you? What's the best place to get in touch with you two? Personally, uh, I think we're both available via at Roll20 app uh, on Twitter. Uh, we're, the, whole, the whole company is easy to find within that realm. But uh, I'm personally at Nolan TJ on Twitter. I'm at I am a snarky pants on Twitter. <laughs> I'll never change that name. That's uh, amazing. One of the new contributors that we brought to the uh, One Shot Podcast Network is Alex Roberts, and her Twitter handle is at Muscular Pikachu. Oh, uh, love it! That's so amazing. You're, yeah, you're you're in good company as far as amazing Twitter handles. <laughs> um, but thank you guys again so much. Thanks yeah, for thank having us. Thank you so much. This was great. That's it for Critical Success this week, heroes. But if you didn't get enough gaming discussion, don't worry. The One Shot Podcast Network has plenty of other informative programs about role-playing and the gaming industry. Be sure to check out Modifier and Backstory on alternating Thursdays and Talking Tabletop every Tuesday. As always, a big thanks to our supporters on Patreon. If you want to help us in a non-monetary way, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about the show. You can also leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Every five-star review we get helps new people find the show. 
If you want to hear more from the show, be sure to follow us on Twitter at OneShotRPG. Look us up on Facebook at Facebook.com slash OneShotPod. Check out our Tumblr at OneShotPodcast.tumblr.com. Check out our Google Plus community. Or look for news on the site at OneShotPodcast.com. If you're looking to inquire about advertising rates, live appearances, and commissioning episodes, or you have a question or comment about something you heard on the show, contact us at GameMaster at OneShotPodcast.com. OneShot is a joint production between Peaches and Hot Sauce and Paracosm Press. Peaches and Hot Sauce is a Chicago-based comedy network with tons of great podcasts, videos, and live shows for you to check out at PeachesAndHotSauce.com. Finally, that music, which is right now swelling up over my voice, is Be Your Own Pet with Adventure, courtesy of Infinity Cat Records. See you next time, heroes. Adventure.